Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And it seems like we have been reading the plagues in the book of Exodus for a long time, and yet the people are still in slavery in Egypt, and it hasn't taken us probably nearly as long as it took them to live through it, and trust me, reading about it is a lot more pleasant than living through it. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. I would do pray that you'd help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed, God, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to think and understand, God, most of all, that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives, God, that we would be changed by your word and by your spirit more and more into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Turn into our gospel reading, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. We have... uh, Jesus being questioned by the Sadducees. says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow But he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. As we approach our sermon text this morning, from Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, I think what Jesus said to the Sadducees is fairly appropriate for most of us most of the time, that we are badly in error because we do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And 
when it comes to making sense of the vision that we are given in uh, this book of Revelation, uh, one of the things that we've been noting throughout is just how much it's calling back on the scriptures. And that the more that we know those, the more revelation actually makes sense and um, is a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ and is doing for us in Christ. But the more, or the less that we know scripture, the less that we know the power of God, the more we just make a mess of revelation. So I have, going through this series thus far, found myself with a little bit of a struggle in that regard because if we take the time to unpack every single uh, reference that Revelation is making to the rest of the Bible, we would never make it out of chapter (laughs) 1. So if we're going to get kind of the big picture, we just kind of need to hit some of the highlights on that, which is more the route we're going. But if I do it that way, then it's like, I don't see where he's getting this. How is this connected to the rest of the Bible? Uh, He keeps saying it is, but I don't see it. And, uh, yep, so, (laughs) sorry about that. So what I've done in that regard, for those of you who are like, I just want to be able to try to follow along, and that's good, uh, then then we're good. If you're like, I really would like to see more about the details that are, you know, some of these connections to the Old Testament and to Jesus specifically, etc., I have put on our website a page of uh, kind of recommended resources on the book of Revelation, and they're podcasts, uh, some curriculum, and then also books that have been organized into kind of beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And that's, um, so you kind of decide how much detail you're wanting there. Anyway, but all of that is uh, just optional for you if it's helpful. But for this morning, we're looking at Revelation chapter 10, and where we are in the book thus far, we have seen a lot of symbolic things. We've seen a lot of, and that does not mean not real, it just means that you know, it represents something uh, more than just what's being seen. And, and usually, in a way that just a physical representation doesn't do it justice, it needs to be more, kind of in a way that a poem can say more than just the amount of words on the page. And um, and we've been talking about this in terms of like political cartoons where you you know what the donkey and the elephant represent when you see them. And you know, if you see one of those animals in a newspaper doing a particular thing, you're not like, oh, that must be what a donkey did this week. You're like, ah, I get it. That's what's okay. Same thing here when it comes to the images that are being given to us. And this time, we are in the second series of, of seven things. There's three series of seven that take place, uh, really given a lot of structure to the book of Revelation. The first we had were the seven seals that were on a scroll, and nobody could open the scroll. And you're like, but then how? How will God's plan ever go forth if nobody even knows what it is and Nobody can put it into effect. How is this going to happen? And so John looks around and he weeps and he weeps because no one is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But then he looks and he sees, uh, or then he hears, don't weep. The 
the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And so he turns around and he looks to see the lion. And what does he see? Not a lion. He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And this is the one who says he was worthy to open the scrolls. And so the lamb takes the scroll and he opens. And as each seal is uh, broken, we start seeing these things happening. And uh, we see these kind of series of judgments coming on the earth all the way up until the seventh seal where we see kind of final judgment. And there was this break in between the sixth and seventh seal. So on the sixth one, it seemed like we're right at the edge of final judgment, but then there's this break and there's this question of who is it that can stand when final judgment comes? Like everything looks pretty bad. No one can survive this, right? Who, who can survive? Who can stand? And so there's this break to tell us who it is. And it's those who are in Christ. And then we get the depiction of the seventh judgment, uh, knowing that those who are, um, who are sealed in Christ will not suffer that. Then we get into these, the next series, which is the series of seven trumpets. And we've seen a similar pattern, although it seems like it starts further along the, uh, further along down the road and same kind of thing though more judgment. But now in, with the seals, we saw, you know, a quarter of things are affected. Now in the trumpets, we see a third of things are affected. So we see there's sort of this escalation. And again, we get to the sixth one and it's like right on the edge, a final judgment. Who can stand? And that's where we are right now is in chapter 10 and 11, we get this break uh, between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And here's how that reads. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from between, coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your, your stomach sour, but in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Another really cool vision that John uh, receives where he 
sees this mighty angel that's standing there, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, and just kind of towering above everything. And when we first look at uh, this mighty angel, we go, well, wait a second, who, who is this mighty angel? And are there any clues that we get as to who this might be? I'll give you some of the descriptions again. Coming down from heaven, robed with a cloud, rainbow above his head, face like the sun, legs like fiery pillars. Any bells going off there? Yeah, we're like, oh, wait, this is totally describing God that we saw on the throne earlier. Or even with fiery pillars, you're thinking about the Exodus where God leads the people with pillars of fire by day kind of thing. And so you're like, wait a second, I think this is God. But then you see these other things where like, wait, no, actually, I think this is Jesus. That's who this is. This is, this is definitely Jesus. And then you go, well, or, or maybe this is just someone who is so closely connected with the Father, with the Son, that they begin to look like him. I, I think of Stephen in the book of Acts when you watch the way that he dies when he is um, being killed. And the, the things that he says right there at the end of his life look like the same things that Jesus is saying right there at the end of his life. And you go, oh, so Stephen's really Jesus. And no. <laughs> but he's been close enough with Jesus, he's starting to look like him. And so right here, I'm not really sure. I tend to think that maybe this is kind of that angel of the Lord that we see throughout the Old Testament that is actually uh, God somehow. <laughs> and that having the foot on the sea and on the land is just showing dominion over all of it. I mean, good grief, having a foot on the sea. Who else does that, right? Peter, but that was a special... <laughs> And then he gives this shout like a roar of a lion. Oh, and he also has the scroll in his hand, which we saw that the lamb, representing Jesus, takes the scroll. So here we have the scroll in his hand. And then he shouts like the roar of a lion. Okay. And this is when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And did you catch what they said? No, you didn't. Because <laughs> even though John hears what it is that they say, and he's about to write down what, the, what it is, because he's writing all this stuff down. This vision is coming. He's writing it all down. And then it says, I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And there's been some uh, speculation as to why this is the case. And so for, uh, for some, it may be that, uh, well, it seems like this is the series of the next seven judgments. Like maybe they were supposed to be four series of seven where you have the seals and the trumpets and then thunders and then the bowls. But for some reason, whatever happens with the thunders, we don't hear about it. And so the question is, is this something that, that was pronounced as judgment, but then God is withholding it and saying, it's not going to happen. Like this, when Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, speaking about a coming day of judgment where he says that those days had not been cut short, you know, who would survive? And so, um, but they've been cut short for the sake of the elect. And so is this that kind of idea of the cutting short of the judgment? So instead of four, we only get three series of judgments or something else going on. I think it may have something to do with that. Um, this also would have made sense because I told you we have the progression of a quarter of the earth and then we have a third of the earth. 
it would make sense mathematically that we'd have a half of the earth before then you get to the whole earth. And we don't have the half of the earth one. So that may be something that would have been in the, uh, what the thunders were talking about. But we don't know. We don't get that one. Which I think is also a good reminder that we don't get all the answers that we want when we go to the Bible. <laughs> you ever notice that? We do get what we need. We don't necessarily get what we want. <laughs> and so here, we are even told there is more information that you don't get. All right, thanks. But then what happens? The angel he had seen raises his hand and swears by him who lives forever and ever and says that there will be no more delay. That the seventh angel, the, yeah, the seventh angel is about to sound the trumpet. Final judgment is coming. The mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. And so then he hears this voice. Okay, now this is, this is what's getting ready to happen. But there's this little interlude here. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Who is it that's going to be able to stand? And what John is told to do is, okay, go get that scroll and eat it. That's not food. <laughs> what is that made out of? But this is the kind of, you've heard the expression, you are what you eat, right? And in some sense, that is actually true. And when you think about it biologically, where does the material in your cells come from? In every part of your body, you're taking that in through what you're eating, right? It actually, what you're putting into you is actually becoming a part of you. And here we see the same kind of thing, but with not just physical food for physical nourishment, but this taking in the very message of God, taking in uh, the gospel itself, taking in uh, the word of God, kind of like how Jesus said. He is the word, but he also says, you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. Right? That we have to take his life so much into us that we become like him. That it is... uh, that there is a sense in which spiritually we are feeding on him all the time. And uh, that who he is is then what is coming out of us. Along these lines, I want to show you this book, because this is the book I always think about when I read this kind of thing. This thing is heavy. You hear that? Pass it around so you can feel it, but you, you can hear that. This is a book that has, uh, oh, over 1,200 pages in it. The, the print is tiny. To give you an example, this is a large print Bible because I'm, you know, needing one of those these days. And, and this book is bigger than the Bible. That's huge. By the way, it is a commentary on the book of Revelation. Where's, <laughs> yeah. You want to know all the details? Anyway, um, and it's not just a commentary on the book of Revelation, but on the Greek text of the book of Revelation. So Revelation was originally written in Greek, and this guy has gone through the Greek and analyzed it all the way, connecting, making all the connections to the whole rest of the Bible, and you want to know how something connects. It's a great resource for that. So why do I think about this book <laughs> in connection with this? 
Because in seminary, the reason I have this book is in one of the classes, this was one of our textbooks for the class. And we were supposed to be reading this for the class. Now, that's not the crazy part. The crazy part is that my professor for the class told us when we got to this point, he no longer owned a copy of this book. We're like, but you're teaching from it. How can you be teaching from a book if you don't even have it? And he said it's because he he ate it. (laughs) Not, you know, fork and knife kind of thing, but he said he was actually the graduate assistant of the man who wrote the book while he was writing the book. And so his job was to go through and double-check all of the cross-references, all of the footnotes, all of the everything, and make sure everything was accurate and correct. And he said, so he went through the entire thing multiple, multiple times and was, of course, close to the guy who was writing this, who was hearing about this kind of stuff all the time. And then he had used this as a textbook in a class that he taught for several years. And he said, so at one point, somebody needed one, and I was like, you can have mine. I don't need it anymore. I've eaten that book, (laughs) which I think it'd be a lot easier to do with a much smaller book personally. But, but I really like that idea that, um, that even if he doesn't have the physical book in hand, that's okay because he's already gotten it into him. He's that familiar with it. And, um, and I do think that this is Part of what is being talked about here, how this is the kind of familiarity we ought to be having with the word of God, that we ought to be doing whatever we can to get it into us in a way that it changes fundamentally who we are, that we actually begin to be changed by the word of God, by his spirit into the people that God has created us to be. Now, this eating the book actually goes back to some things earlier on in the Old Testament. We have Connection to Ezekiel there. But I want us to look at this last part. He's told that he's supposed to eat the book and that it's going to make his stomach turn sour. You notice that? It's going to be sweet in his mouth, make his stomach turn sour. This is a perfect time to talk about uh, not eating too much candy tomorrow night. It'll be sweet in your mouth, but may make your... Okay, that's not what this is talking about, though. It's not that kind of thing. It's not like, oh, you eat a little bit of the Bible and it's really sweet, but if you eat too much, oh, be careful, it's going to make you sick. It's not that. It's, it's eat it all. Eat it. And, but this is what's going to happen. Like when you first get a taste of Scripture and you see the sweetness and the goodness of the message and you hear the forgiveness of Jesus for you and you go, this is good news. And you look at the greatness of God and you say, this is wonderful. He is awesome and he's amazing. And so you're thinking, it's, it's all sweet and wonderful and lovely. But the more that you do get the message of God into you, the more you understand the mystery of the good news of Jesus. The more you understand that it's not all sweet. That there is some hard stuff in this world and there is hard stuff that comes along with the message of the gospel in two ways. And Jesus helps us in both these ways to make sense of it. First of all, when we think that it's all sweet and everything's wonderful and now I've got Jesus in my life and and all will, all will just be great. I'll never have to 
suffer anything ever again. I mean, Jesus did. He went to the cross. I got that. But now that he's raised from the dead, for me, it's only victory all the time, right? But then that doesn't make sense of what Jesus actually said in Luke 9, where he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It is a follow me to victory, but it's a follow me to victory by way of the cross. There is a self-sacrifice. This is Paul talking about in Romans 12, where he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is the way of the cross, the way of Jesus. And when we really start to understand that and internalize this message, and it becomes not so theoretical of, ah, yes, sometimes some Christians have to sacrifice some things. (laughs) But we begin to internalize the good news of God for us in Jesus also means that we have to personally lay down our lives, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That it involves personal sacrifice, and there will be suffering along the way. And our stomachs stomach start to turn, right? There's another part to it. And this is the part um, that it may be even harder to get. This is that this message of what God's doing in the world is wonderful. When we realize you start at the beginning with uh, Genesis and everything is created good. And you go all the way to the end and you see it all good again. But you know that right now it's all messed up, right? And we went through that prayer of confession earlier today. And this is one where I mean, you could take that, that same prayer to anyone around the globe at any time in history. And how sad is that to think that we would all be able to pray this prayer and go, mm, yeah, yeah, that's me. I have personally um, messed up God's good world in some of these specific ways. And this is just a small list. That's a pretty big mess. And so we, get, we hear that God is going to get it from this mess that we're in now to all good. Where people are able to dwell in right relationship with God and with each other and with all of creation. And we say, this is good. This is sweet. But then we realize that the way that it gets there is through judgment. Through the getting rid of of the evil and the wickedness in the world. And in that, there will be people who would rather have their wickedness than have God. And so there will be destruction there that should grieve us all. On the one hand, we should celebrate the fact that wickedness is being destroyed. On the other hand, we should grieve when there are people who cling to the wickedness and are themselves destroyed. And we see this in Jesus too. We see in Luke 19, 
I mean, listen to this. When Jesus says in Luke 19, 43 and 44, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. <clears throat> Excuse me. Speaking of Jerusalem, they will dash you to the ground and you and your children within your, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Sounds angry, doesn't he? It's only because I read it angry. And I started halfway through. Listen to how it sounds. If you actually pick it up in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem, this is as Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You hear the difference? That Jesus, in pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, which is deserved, and it is personally affecting him, and yet he weeps. He weeps at their destruction. He does not celebrate. And this is a part of the message that as we internalize the word of God, as we take this message into our own lives, that ought to be a part of it too. Yes, there's sweetness. But there's also a bitter side to it. There's also the side that should turn our stomachs. We should weep over the coming judgment, even of those who have it coming. Even of those who maybe have been doing things to us or to our people. And yet, I love that in our children's sermon today, it lines up so nicely with this. The language of sweet and bitter and the, um, the way in which God works through the story of Naomi. And one of my favorite parts about that book is if you only read chapter one, it looks like a story that starts well and ends really sad. And it ends in bitterness. This is when she comes back to Bethlehem and she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has made my life very bitter. But that's not the last line of chapter one. In the very end of chapter one, Last line says this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It means nothing the first time you read it. But when you know the rest of the story and how it all plays out, everything that is needed to, for the rest of the story to work is in that one sentence. 
All the right people are in the right place at just the right time. And so after you've read the whole story and you come back to that, Naomi can't see it yet because she's going through it the first time. (laughs) She's still bitter, but you see it and you go, oh, this is so good. This is what uh, the good news of the gospel is like. This is what the mystery of God in Christ is revealed to us. We go through a lot of things where we go, this is making me bitter. (laughs) But in Christ, we know that all the right people have been in all the right place at just the right time for the story that may be bitter right now to end well. And so this is where, um, where John ends this chapter. Is sure enough, he takes the scroll, he eats it. Sure enough, it's sweet. And it turns his stomach. Both. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. There is still more for him to do than just take it in. But now that he's taken it in, to be one who spreads the message that is both sweet and sour. My prayer for us this week is that we would continue to intentionally take in this message that it would become, uh, or that we would become those who are feeding on the word of God and being changed by it, that we would look more and more like Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we do thank you for your word, which you have given to us. And God, we do pray that you would help us to really be those who spend time with your word, meditate on it, go over and over and over and over again what it is you have said. Lord, that we would feed on the message of Jesus, not as an occasional snack, as we try to avoid the parts that make our stomachs turn. But God, help us to see the way that your word really is nourishing and the true life you have for us. And help us to take in the sweet. Help us to take in the sour. Help us to follow you well. And help us to be then good representatives, ambassadors, and witnesses of the good news of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.